there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before. And it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. This work cannot grow if it's received by our ordinary selves, the part of us that's acquired in life. The problem with this is, is that this work cannot be received by anything else. It's only our ordinary selves that can receive it. We don't have something else. At least, if we do have something else, we don't know what it is. We're not aware of it. So what's the point? It's like having a billion dollars in a numbered Swiss bank account and you don't have the number. You could starve to death that way. The work must be felt as something completely different from life. This is how we begin. We can't really receive this work in anything other than our ordinary selves in the beginning. We've got to find a place where we can begin to work. And so we need to feel that this work comes from something outside of life, something that's different from life. It doesn't have the same aims as life. It doesn't have the same goals as life. It doesn't have the same purpose for us that life has for us. I'm not saying life's purpose for us is bad. There are millions and millions of people, probably billions of people in the world who have lived and died according to life's purposes, and it was just fine. I mean, they suffered, they were in misery, they, they had joy, they had pleasure, they had families, they had great wealth. Some of them starved to death, some of them died in wars, some of them died in luxury, but they all died. They served life's purpose and did just fine with that. You don't need this work. This work is not something you need. This is a luxury item. This is a luxury item for the good householder, someone who has come to the place in life where he has basically made his way in life, but he no longer believes in life as an end in and of itself. He is capable in life. He's able to sustain himself and others in life, yet he does not believe in life. And so this work can come to a man like that, but it can't come to just ordinary individuals. And that's, so when we say the work cannot grow if it is received by ordinary selves, it's first received by ordinary selves, but we have to have something that the work calls magnetic center. It doesn't really say what that is other than this feeling inside that there's more to life than just what life tells us there is. And if you've got that, you've got something that can begin to receive these ideas because these ideas come from outside of life. They come from a place that's not in life. Something that comes from outside of life has another source, another goal, another aim than that of life's source, goal, aim for us. To have this happen, we must move our center of gravity, our center of gravity of consciousness specifically. It's got to be shifted somehow. It's got to be moved somehow from the outer world where, let's face it, most people are interested in the things of the outer world. Most people are glued to the outer world through the five senses. They're incredibly attached to the outer world. People used to tell me that they weren't. We may labor under the illusion that we're not attached to the five senses, but that's imagination. We live through the five senses. We are connected to life through the five senses. What this work aims to do is to somehow seal us from life so that where we get our nourishment is not from life directly, 
but from something other than what life has to offer, something higher, something inner, something that doesn't come from life itself, something outside life's system. When we do this, our center of gravity begins to shift ever so slightly, almost without noticing it. It slowly begins to shift from the outer to something more internal in us. Ideas start to become more important to people who have become good householders and who have magnetic center. Ideas begin to become more important and they start to look for the fulfillment of something that magnetic center is kind of gnawing away, as it were, inside of them. And they start to look for some way to fulfill that, that something, to satisfy that something. Now this shift is done through the practice of self-observation. Self-observation, as you know, forms an observing eye, which is internal to us. It's not external. It's not some observing eye that appears, you know, in a spaceship. A spaceship doesn't come over your house one night and a beam of light comes down and an observing eye then is formed over you and then it follows you around observing you. No, it's not that at all. It's internal. There's nothing mystical about this part of the work. The mystery of the work is how difficult it is for us to actually do it instead of imagining that we're doing it. That's the mystery of this work from my perspective. Through this observing eye we begin to see ourselves as something acquired in life. This is a very difficult thing. To begin to see yourself as something acquired in life, it's like beginning to see yourself as moss growing on a tree, beginning to see yourself as leaves on a tree, beginning to see yourself not as the entity that you thought you were, this entity that came into life and then impacted life, but instead this entity that came into life forgot itself and then had this coating. It like was dipped in life over and over and over again, the way you would dip a candle. And they start off with just a string. And if you've ever made candles this way, they start with just and they dip it. And they keep and they let it dry and they dip and they dry and dip and dry. And Layer after layer after layer builds up this candle. The same thing happens with us. We get dipped in life and it leaves a coating on us. And then coat after coat after coat after coat until who we are, the string that came into life, is not visible anymore. This is what happens to us. And we see ourselves as the candle rather than the string. Yeah, that's a pretty good analogy. I guess we could go all kinds of places with the lights and all that stuff, but when you light the candle, what does it burn? You know, what is its fuel? Its fuel is the, what was acquired, the personality that was acquired in life. Interesting. Well, we'll leave that for another time. So we begin to observe ourselves as something that was acquired in life. And the separation begins to move us inward. Our sense of self, our feeling of I, begins to be slowly drawn out of the candle, slowly, slowly drawn out of the coats, the overcoats that we're wearing, and slowly shifted to something more internal. But we don't really know what exactly, because there's no way to define it with the senses, and we're so sense-oriented, five-sense-oriented, that all of our definitions are about the senses. And we get to this other thing, and here's where the mystery is. We don't know how to explain what this thing is, this observing eye is, without some kind of analogy from the outside world that we're so familiar with, that we live in, that we, that we are a part of. We are actually a part of it. We're connected to the outside world through our senses, and we're run by the outside world, the machinery of the planet, through our senses. 
It is actually turning us. And it does it through our senses. So the work says we must seal ourselves so that life can no longer, the machine of life can no longer turn us and operate us and make us work according to its purpose. But then we have an opportunity to work according to an inner purpose or a higher purpose and develop in a totally different direction. Now, this is pretty darned exciting to me. It's the most exciting thing I've ever come across. And I've come, every time I come across it, no matter where it is, the, the roots of whatever religion or whatever philosophy or whatever teaching, when I find it, I get excited because of the commonality of the truth, the underlying truth of it all. It's thousands and thousands of years old. People have been saying these things for thousands of years, and a lot of it is very cryptic to us now. But you can learn to understand what they were saying. And that's part of what we're going to do this morning. We're going to try and understand some of the things that people were saying thousands of years ago about this very thing. We've talked much about sealing ourselves from life. What that means is we talk about sealing ourselves from what upsets us. Because let's, let's get real. Sealing ourselves from life, what does that mean? Well, what it means is sealing yourself from what upsets you in life. Oh, so that's easy. I just won't have anything to do with those people anymore. That's not sealing yourself. That's walling yourself off. There's a difference. That's taking yourself out of life. This is the fourth way, the way in life, not the way of the monk, the way out of life. We're not in a monastery. We're not taking ourselves out of life. We're staying in life. And I'll tell you, anyone who's lived like a monk, and each one of you who's done the 10-day at least, lived like a monk for about 10 days where you didn't speak and you only ate what they served you and then you meditated 10 hours a day and you stayed in your little room and you didn't talk to anybody or look at anybody or have anything to do with anybody, you'll remember very distinctly that you were not sealed from the people in, in your life, that you still had gripes about the people in your life. There were still people who were annoying. They made annoying sounds. They made annoying entrances. They made annoying exits. Remember that? They didn't, you didn't have to ever talk to anybody to be annoyed by them. <laughs> we take our annoyances with us wherever we go. It doesn't matter. And it wouldn't matter which 10-day you were in and which people were there. Because there's always going to be someone who will annoy you. Well, why is that? Well, because people are annoying. We need not to have anything to do with them. No, we need to seal ourselves from life so that we understand that it's not those people. It's our reactivity to those people because of something inside of us that we have not become aware of, that we have not accepted about ourselves. This theoretical action of sealing ourselves from life is based upon separating ourselves from the upset side. See, this is the deal. What this is, is the difference between separating myself from these upsetting people and separating myself from the upset side of me. There's a side of me that gets upset. That's why I can go anywhere and find someone who can annoy me. Well, why is that? Because there's an upset side of me that reacts to certain things and will react mechanically every time the same way and be annoyed. And what is it that the work says that that is? The work says that what that is is something, that we, something about ourselves that we have not seen and have not accepted or that we have seen and have not accepted as in us or that we have seen and not accepted as in us because we have seen it in someone else and judged it very harshly there, which means it couldn't possibly be in us. And even if it is, it's horrible, hateful, wrong, and we keep it tucked away and it never gets a chance to come out, which makes us better than those other people who let it come out. We are so slick. False personality is so slick about this. Endless justification, endless excuses and reasoning and word games 
to get this all lined up so that we're always right, so that we're always walled off from life rather than sealed. And what it is, it's about separating ourselves from the upset side of ourselves, not from life. Here enters imagination. I may seal myself from Parkinson. It doesn't mean I've overcome Parkinson. It means I've found an observation room. I love these, uh, these shows on television where they have, you know, these criminal shows where they'll, they'll catch some guy and they take him into the interrogation room. And then there's this two-way mirror thing. And you can, you can see into the interrogation room and you have a little switch out there and you can hear what they're saying in there. But they, don't, they can't see you and they can't hear you. And it's an ob so the people, you know, the lieutenant will be in the observation room while the detectives are questioning the suspect, and the you know, or the district attorney will be in the observation room. And so this is, this, in a sense, I'm drawing this picture for you because I, I want you to have this idea of an observation room where you're looking through at yourself, the upset part of you. You're actually looking at it, and you you turn the switch on, and you're listening to what it's saying, and you're watching it, but it can't see you. It doesn't know you exist at all. It's just in there ranting and raving, confessing or denying whatever it's doing. And you are watching it, separated from it, sealed away from it, so that you are not connected to it and upset with it. You're just observing it. This is your observation room, or as we put it in other times, your work room, your clean room, where you seal yourself off from what's going on in that room, but you still observe it. You see it. You hear it. And you observe the whole thing as if you were watching an interesting stranger because it is an interesting stranger because it's your upset side and it's not really you. To observe doesn't mean to control. This is what we get into our heads. Oh, if I can observe it, I can control it. Oh, no, you can't. Oh, but, but isn't this work about getting control? No, this work is about increasing your consciousness. Well, how do you do that? Well, you do that by changing your thoughts and changing your attitudes. Well, how do you do that? You do that by observing yourself according to the way the work tells you to observe yourself. Well, can't I just observe myself any old way? Well, yes, you can. It won't work. You won't get the results you're looking for, but you can. We can do anything that we can do mechanically. But what this work shows us is that we can't stop being mechanical. For some reason, we can't seem to remember that we're mechanical. We can't seem to remember that we're not one. We can't seem to remember that it isn't those things out there that are making us do this. It's our upset side that is making us do this. And we can't remember to separate from that upset side. And if you can't remember, it's like your Swiss bank account number. If you can't remember the number, you can't have the money in the account. Oh, well, that... That's not a very pleasant situation. No, but the pleasant situation, the, the good news is you can learn to remember yourself. You can exercise this self-remembering muscle, as it were, and make it stronger and stronger. And that's why we do these exercises. So it doesn't mean we have control. Certainly it doesn't in the beginning. We observe for a long time before the force of consciousness becomes sufficient enough to do anything. How many of us in this last exercise found that our force of consciousness ran out very quickly. We'd use a little bit of it, it's just like, bleh, it was gone. It's like, oh, I didn't, there wasn't much, there wasn't much left in the tube. <laughs> you know? somebody, somebody took it all out, there wasn't much left in the bottle. I went to get some milk and there was just this little dribble. Somebody, somebody used it all. And we don't know who. You know, we don't know who used it. I'll tell you who used it. Negative emotions, some eye that wanted to be king for a moment. Some eye that wanted to rant and rave about something that someone did. Used up, drank up all the milk, used up all the glue. 
drained it. And so when we went to use it for something that observing eye, that work eyes decided we wanted to do, we find there was nothing left. There was just a little dribble in there. And so we have to build up some more. We have to generate some more. This division can be a painful process as well. The idea of a sword being used to divide isn't new. Now we all know that if you want to cut something, you've got some bread or something and you want to cut it, it's, it's a good idea to have a knife because a knife can part one part of the loaf from another part of the loaf. It, it divides it, it actually divides. What, what is a slice of bread? A slice of bread is a piece of bread that has been divided from the whole loaf. That's what it is. And so this idea of a sword is an interesting idea. And as I said, we talk about things that were thousands of years old. People have been saying for thousands of years that we'd pretty much forgotten what it meant. Or we never knew what it meant because we had old, old associations from whatever about them. Some people never heard these things. Some people heard these things so many times that it became mechanical to them and they never heard anything underneath it. They never heard what it meant. They heard the words and it was just like, womp, 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 Charlie Brown, womp, 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 womp. It never made sense to them. But we can make sense of these things because there is a hidden language. What makes it hidden? Our ignorance. It's not that anybody hid it. It's just that somebody put it in a jar for safekeeping. And then we forgot how to open the jar. We forgot where the jar was, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. These people put these scrolls in these jars, clay jars, and hid them in caves for safekeeping. And then those people disappeared and forgot where the, where the jars were. And some shepherd boy throwing rocks busted one of the jars in a cave, went in to see what it was, and found the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were old. The New Testament is full of interesting references to the sword. For example, Luke 2.35. This is really an interesting thing to say about a sword. And the sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Huh? This guy's not talking about a, a samurai sword. This guy's not talking about a Roman short sword. This guy's not talking about the kind of sword that we would use to cut something in an outer way. He's talking about something internal. What kind of sword forged by man out of some kind of metal will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed? Think about that. You know, it's like, okay, so I got, a, I, I got an idea. This guy's talking about something else. But what is he talking about? What kind of sword is he talking about? All right, well, let's look a little more. There's another reference, and I don't know if it has anything to do with this or not, but I, I found it, and, and I thought, well, I'd like to share it. And it's in Ephesians 6, 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, well, now we're really wacko because people go crazy over the Word of God. Oh, it's the Bible, it's this. And then you have, then you start religious wars and the Crusades and Jihad. And it goes, it gets insane fast. Because people identify with this because they don't understand. Well, what is the word of God? You know, it's an active thing, isn't it? It's a verb. So it's something that acts. All right, so what is the verb of God? Well, a lot of people will say, oh, Jesus is the verb of God. Okay, well, you can say that if you want. And that's fine. But then what does that mean? In other words, just like a sword means something, this means something as well. It's the active power of God. What is God? I don't know. Something higher. 
That's what I do know. I know it's something higher than me. And and I don't know what. But it's something higher than me. Something that comes from outside of me. Something that does not come from this system in life. So it's the something like that. Well, you call it anything you want. Call it the law, if you'd like. And interestingly enough, a lot of teachings do call it the law. That the law is something that's higher than us, outside of us. That there are principles behind the law that generate the law. And that the law is the action action of the principle. Which is really kind of a cool idea, if you look at it that way. So the principle becomes then this force, higher force. And the action of that force becomes is the word, or the law, or the sword, in this instance. So I offer that because it's, it was interesting to me. Also, there's one other one that, I, that went along with the, the sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And, that's, and I found that one in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. Okay, so we're not talking about a man-made metal sword of both joints and marrow. And listen to this. This is, this is, what, this is what reminds me of it. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, what heart? Your cardioplexus? No! They're not talking about swords that can judge the intentions of the thoughts of your, the muscle that's in your chest going bum, 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 circulating blood. It's an idea. These people had a language that they spoke and they had ideas behind words that we have lost. The same way that we have, that, that the Dead Sea Scrolls were lost. The same way that so many things are lost to us. We forget. Surely, the exercises have shown you, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that you can be counted on to forget. Well, I know I was supposed to do that, but I forgot. But I'm my own man, and I'm in charge of things, even when I remember. <laughs> Just that I can't remember. That's my problem. Yeah. All right, so there's, there's that one. And then finally, there's, the, there's this one in Revelation where it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. I think it's interesting that it's seven stars. Why not six stars? Why not nine stars? Why not, you know, 14 stars? Why is it seven stars? Why is seven? Why, you know, why is it the law of seven? Why is it three? Why is it the law of three? Why are these things always so important in everything, in all physical life, even in all physical life? Three and seven are very important numbers. Everything seems to work on those numbers. They are, you can't really reduce the laws of the universe any further than three and seven. Just interesting that there's seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Okay, again, we're not talking about a man-made metal sword. Clearly, they're talking about something else. Clearly, these people knew something we don't know. These people had a language for something that we have somehow lost. These people were able to discuss these things, these ideas with one another, in a way that we are not able to do readily. We take everything literally according to the five senses. We don't take it in an inner way. We don't take it in a higher way, the way it was meant to be taken. And we lose a lot because of that. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Wow, that's really kind of cool when you think about it, you know, what the sun represents in this work. And if you don't know, well, read all about it. I'm sure you'll be able to find something will tell you.
There's another thing in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, that, said, that, talks about, that talks about swords as well. And I find this one rather interesting, too. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Again, we're not talking about a metal sword made by man. Because, for I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And now we're cutting to the chase. Now we're where I wanted to go. Now we're talking about what I was talking about. What is it that we are sealing ourselves from? What is it that we're parting ourselves from? What is it that we're using this sword of self-observation to separate ourselves from? If it is not something that's inside of us, we need to seal ourselves from the upset side of us. It's the upset side of me that needs to be separated from. It's not, I need to separate myself from those people out there that upset me. I need to separate myself from the upset side of myself. And this sword of self-observation gives me the opportunity to do just that, which I think is really cool. Now, I could be wrong about all this. Maybe that's not what a sword means at all. But that's one of its meanings today. Why? Because I said so. Because it works for me. Does it work for you? And really, you know, I'm not saying this is the whole thing. I'm not saying I know everything. I'm saying that this is one of the meanings of this, that there are probably many meanings of this. We know that there are seven religions, religion of man number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We know there are at least seven religions. It doesn't matter what you call them. They're all going to be basically based on man one, two, three, four, five, six, or seven. We know that each different level reveals more and more understanding Opposites are no longer opposites the higher you go, the more internal you become. Opposites are no longer opposites. You are able to accept opposites as not opposites at all, but as really two sides of the same coin. Our enemies truly are the members of our household. And I don't mean a physical sword made by, with metal by man pounding and putting it in the furnace. And I don't mean physical people that are born and walk around and are, and are blood relatives. I mean the members of our own internal household. That's what I mean, and that is what I think these people meant, too. And I think that the only reason that it's still here is because the religious guys couldn't figure out that that's what it meant, so they couldn't expunge it. They took it all literally, and they couldn't figure it out. They lost the key, because there's a key, as you can see. When you start to look at this with the key, it's like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. That, that, I can see that now. You start to have some understanding about it. It starts to get exciting. At least I hope it's exciting. All growth is by division in life. One cell divides. All growth is by division. How important is it to have a sword so that you can divide? If all growth is about division, starts with division, then we must have a sword so that we can divide ourselves if we are going to grow in a different direction than the way life grows us. And that, I hope, is what you're here for. Man is a self-developing organism. A cell divides into two. Man is a cell. Can you see that, man, that, we are, that each of us here are cells in this body of people? Okay, so we're cells. You yourself are a cell made up of billions and trillions of cells. And they divide in order to grow. I observe Parkinson doing things, yet I'm not Parkinson. The great problem here is identification sucking my sense of I, my feeling of I, back into Parkinson. It's like a tug of war.
<laughs> you know, it's like, oh, 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 you know, the work pulling on one side, the work pulling me out this way. And then my identification, my negative emotions pulling me back into Parkinson. Because I love those negative emotions. I love that feeling of being self-righteous. I love that feeling of being right. I love that feeling of making people wrong. I love that. Parkinson loves that. Now, I know he's the only one who does. But that's neither here nor there. This isn't about anybody else. This is about Parkinson and something in me forming that can separate from him, somehow bringing a sword between this observing eye and Parkinson, because I don't want to do the things that he does. I don't want to be the person that he is. Now, I'm not saying that he's all bad, but what I'm saying is he's out of control, and I don't want to be out of control. I don't want to be directed by life. Jesus sounds like preaching, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's not so bad. You know, this is exciting to me. The work begins to fight with life in you. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The work begins to fight with life. Life wants to pull you this way. The work pulls you another way. And this tug of war starts and it begins and it gets intense. It's interesting to me. At this point, it's easier to hear it than to do it. We can all hear this. Boy, when it comes to doing it, yeah, you all heard the exercise whenever you heard about the exercise. Then when it came to doing it, what happened? Oh, I heard it. <laughs> you hear that? Well, I think I heard that. Yeah. Is that what you? Yeah. I think it was stupid. What a stupid exercise. That's a stupid exercise. What's that going to do for me? That's a stupid exercise. I don't have to do that. So you agreed to do it, but then it got stupid and then you disagreed. Well, what was that about? Well, that was about one eye that thought it was a good idea. And another eye came up and said, I don't want to do that. And that eye just sucked your sense of self right into it. And there you were, down the road with it. So who are you? Well, I don't know. Right, that's a good start. So get the sword out. Self-observation. Make that separation between what it is that life has acquired, has made, has built, and what you, what the work wishes you to be, what the work will make of you, if you will allow it. Where does this work come from? It doesn't come from us. It comes from higher. It comes from outside of our system. Justice is depicted blindfolded with a sword. I find that very interesting. Blindfolded with a sword. I cannot look at Parkinson and pity him and make excuses for the things he does and justify what he does. I must be blind to life if I'm going to see what true justice is, what real justice is. And then I must use that sword wisely. The divide between life and this higher something for which we work. If we could always remember ourselves, we'd be in the third level of consciousness where nothing happening in the second level had power over us. If, if we could remember ourselves. I can't tell you how many people can remember themselves in their imagination, but I can tell you how many people remember themselves in actuality. Fewer. <laughs> That's just, just leave it there. Fewer. That's how many. Recent Cole suggests in the third level of consciousness, this level of self-awareness, that we actually have the ability to walk on ourselves, ourselves, in the second level of consciousness. It's really kind of cool. So in the observation room, in this third level of consciousness, I have the ability to walk on those stormy eyes in the second level of consciousness attached to life, reacting to everything in life, the upset part of me. I have the ability to get above it and to actually walk over it. In the same way that Jesus walked on the water, was what Maurice Nicole said. He called it, what did he say? He said in, in John uh, 6, 15, I don't know if I have that around. I didn't mark that. But in John chapter 6, verses uh, 15 through 21, 
is where the story is. And it's an interesting story. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were in, intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And what Nicole says is that what they're trying to tell you is that he pulled his sense of self, his feeling of I, out of what the people wanted to do. They wanted to make him king. Well, how many of us would pull our sense of self out of that? sense of our feeling of I out of that. Well, that's, it's about time somebody recognized my true worth and made me king. King of the universe, right? <clears throat> Not just king of the world, king of the universe. Now, of course, there, there are a lot of people who will lie about that. But you need to be genuine and sincere in your own work, and it's up to you. If you want to lie about it, that's up to you. Go right ahead. Enjoy yourself. If you want to do the hard work of looking at yourself and seeing what a liar and a fraud you actually are, not because I say so, and not even really because the work says so, but because it is so. Just that simple. The work says so because it is so. It isn't so because the work said so. The truth is the truth because that's what's so. It's not the truth because someone said so. I think we forget that sometimes. So he withdrew himself to the mountain by himself alone. Observing eye headed for the hills. Got up above it all. Alone. Separate. Separate. You can't be... If you draw yourself away alone, you go alone someplace, you have separated yourself from all the rest. You've gone higher up inside of yourself, more internal to your outside exterior world. Nicole suggests that Jesus was able to walk on the stormy waters in himself and not sink back to the second level of consciousness. When we remember ourselves, we become one eye above the little eyes in ourselves. When we remember ourselves, those little eyes don't have the power over us. Mm-hmm that they did have when we forgot who we were and our sense of self was in them. Through the action of the sword, we seal ourselves from ourselves. I seal myself from Parkinson's reactions to life. I seal myself from that upset side of me, or the upset side of him, as it were. We can't just go up into the mountain. You can't just go into a monastery. You can't just go up into the mountain. We must come back down into life and bring what we found there, that sense of self separate from all of the eyes in us, we must bring that back down into life and live like that in life. Or else what good is it? What good is a medicine that only works when you're well? The deal is, is we've got to learn to walk on the stormy waters and not sink. It's not about walking on land. It's not about walking on, you know, stepping on the stones <laughs> across the pond. It's not about that. It's about learning how to walk on the stormy part of us in life while we're in it. What good is it if the only time you have peace is when there's nothing going on? That's not when I want peace. I want peace in the middle of the storm. I want peace in the middle of the upset. I want to be able to retreat to this place in myself where I am sealed from the upset. That's what I want. That seems valuable to me. Self-observation is the sword that moves us into the third level of consciousness above the level of life which is the second level of consciousness, waking sleep, where the difference between being asleep on our bed and our normal, ordinary state of consciousness, the second level of consciousness, is that the moving center has become active. And it's more dangerous because you're not going to walk out in front of a bus in anything except your dreams when you're asleep on your bed. But when you're asleep in life, people walk out in front of buses, trains, cars all the time. Well, how could that be? Because it's waking sleep. And what this work is saying, and what 
all esoteric teachings that I've been able to find have been saying for thousands of years is, look, you have been given a sword. You can separate from this, but it's up to you to use it, and it's up to you to learn how to wield it wisely. So get busy. The linchpin of this work is the practical application of the ideas shared in the podcasts. If you'll go to solidrockvista.com, to the thoughts page, I've written a number of articles that will help you to practice the principles that we're sharing with you in the podcasts.